Turn in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We're on page 1675 in the Pew Bibles and uh, we're looking from verse 11. Um, you'll be pleased to know we're not doing verses two, 1 to 10 uh, this week. Uh, let me pray and let's uh, go to verse 11. Our Heavenly Father, the psalmist uh, said that uh, he could say to you that his soul uh, keeps your word. Uh, he said he could do that because he loves your word exceedingly. Uh, Lord, we come and ask for forgiveness uh, for our lack of love uh, for your word. And we do pray that your Holy Spirit will come and make up to us all that we lack uh, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1971, uh, John Lennon uh, wrote his bestseller, Imagine. It was a cry for peace in a hostile and divided world. Uh, today, the song is sung at major events uh, all around the world. Uh, one president in the US said that uh, it's sung more often than national anthems in some countries. Uh, every year, if you were in New York on New Year's Eve, you will find that it actually brings in the new year. Um, it was sung after 9-11. It was sung during lockdowns. Most recently, they had a meeting of leaders and uh, to discuss the war between Ukraine and Russia. And they sang uh, this song uh, before the meeting started. Here are some of the words. Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Uh, this is from a man who couldn't have peace with his own wife. Uh, imagine no possessions. Once again, a man who had so many possessions he couldn't even share them with his wife. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. He didn't even share the credits with his second wife who wrote most of these words. And then he says, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. You probably picked up on one of his best fans. Um, and the obvious question is, uh, will we get peace uh, by just dreaming John Lennon's dream? Or does the Bible offer a successful, a better way? Let us look at it. Now the first thing we pick up from uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 is that we must remember. Remember that we belong to a hostile and a divided world. And as I said, we're back in Ephesians again. Uh, we were in chapter 2. We finished uh, verses 1 to 10. And today we read verses 11 to 22. Uh, I believe, obviously, these are all connected. It's one letter, but they go all the way back, in fact, to chapter 1. And chapter 1, if you go back to verses 17 and 18, Paul says he constantly prays for the Ephesians. 
and he says he prays that they may know God and that they may know God's saving plan. That's exactly what we sang uh, just now in the song. Uh, speak, O Lord. But then the third thing he prays for the Ephesians, and this is in verse 19 of chapter 1, he says that they will know the exceeding greatness of his, that is God's power, toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And then he goes straight into chapter 2 and alerts them to the fact that God is already exercising power and has already exercised power in their lives. Um, if you are a Christian and as they were Christians, uh, he says to them, you were once dead in your sin and God exercised power to make you alive. Uh, God did this freely. Uh, God did this without any pressure. He injected new life into you totally voluntarily. It was sheer power. And of course it was mixed with kindness and much grace. And then Paul confirms that God not only did that to convert the Ephesians, but he also continued with them and continues with every Christian. He continues to work power uh, his power in us every day and he continues to work that we might actually do the good works verse 10 is where we ended off and let me read that verse and you'll uh, read of how God works in a Christian to produce good works for we are his workmanship it says created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them now, if we were to come to, say, 1 to 10 again, hypothetically, and we're not going to do that, and, um, and if we were to read it again, we would see the pronoun you, and every time we see you, we would instantly read it and think it's talking about me. Um, but when you go to the Greek manuscript, the you is not in the singular, it's in the plural. In other words, Aussies get it right, don't we? We say yous. Um, and then we possibly would read the we, uh, even in the singular. We would say it's speaking to me, but we is obviously plural. In fact, it would not surprise me if even when the Ephesian church were hearing the letter read out loud in their hearing, uh, that individuals, some of them were sitting there and they were listening and they were listening to the yous and they were instantly saying, this is speaking to me about me thinking in a very individualistic sense. Uh, and folks, this is not the general thrust of Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Paul is speaking of God working in a community. He's speaking about God uh, working amongst a group of his people uh, who are regularly gathered together. And from verse 11 onwards, you'll find this is so obvious. The Apostle is showing us how God's power works out in the church. Um, what does it look like? Well, to understand God's power, Paul tells the Ephesians, I want you to compare your past with your presence. And he said uh, quite specifically to the Gentiles, he speaks to the Gentiles and he says to them, I want you to think back to your past and now think back where you are today. And he says, make this comparison. And the reason he picks on the Gentiles is because they're the majority of the church. I suspect if he was coming to our church, he would say something like, I want to speak to the Indians. Or I would say the Russians. Uh, but um, 
but, but to get a feel even to what he's saying to the majority of the church uh, I, I think you've actually got to think more in the mindset of a Jew you, you see a Jew in the first century uh, was so convinced they were the chosen people of God um, uh, that they considered themselves a holy people to God uh, they were if they were a holy people uh, that they were God's people that were put on earth to really attract all the other nations to God instead their chosen status made them arrogant and made them so sure of themselves that not only were they arrogant they looked down on all the others and became instead of an attraction they became repulsive and the arrogance really is surprising isn't it because you would like to think that if they were God's people and they were living in blessing well then they'd be prospering and they would actually be expanding and they would be going from strength to strength but Israel was actually suffering defeat after defeat they were in misery and all the other nations around them were actually prospering you would think this would breed humility but instead of humility what did it breed well amongst the Jews the general sentiment was bigotry even more of it it was resentment that the nations were doing so well and it was bitterness and in some cases um, it resulted in revolts um, the Jews called the other nations Gentiles and we would think well Gentiles well it just means ethnic uh, but it was you sort of said Gentiles with a bit of a squint on your face a bit like you'd say in the 80s and the 70s when we came here you'd call someone a wog and they were the ethnics uh, to a Jew they were in their privileged corner and every other nation was in their less privileged space or corner and this was clearly even exhibited in their temple when you came to worship in the temple they had the space where all the Jews would come and that was near what was the dwelling place of God and then they had a wall and on the wall they had keep out signs and on the other side of the wall far away were the Gentiles the Jews condescendingly looked down on them uh, they were considered to be unclean even subhuman because they were called dogs and then the Jews also called them the uncircumcision and that's code really that's saying you're rejected by God you're not one of God's people you're not in his community one rabbi was quoted as saying this of the Gentiles he said they're only good for keeping the fires of hell burning and this morning if you're wondering who the Gentiles are if you're not a Jew he's speaking about you look at verse 11 therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands Paul is just describing really the fact that, that there was this bigoted view of the Gentiles but he's having a little dig at the Jews at the same time because he's reminding them that their hostility their animosity uh, towards Gentiles was really man-made it was their own making it was not given to them by God and he says that their circumcision was made by the flesh of their hands made in the flesh by hands 
It was not a circumcision of the heart. It was not something that God gave them. Now, I don't want you to think that racism was one-sided, that the Jews, for instance, just hated the Gentiles and that the Gentiles didn't hate the Jews. It was actually mutual. Uh, they both hated each other. And it was not just mutual, but it was also internal. The hostility uh, was really um, Jew versus Jew and Gentile versus Gentile. It was hard to work out who was fighting who. Certainly all the Gentiles hated the Jews and they would go to war uh, with Israel often. But often you would see Gentile going to war with Gentile and even Israel's history is littered with Jew fighting Jew. Uh, God gave Israel a wonderful land. He gave them a king, King David. And you would think things would just go on from better to better, but really it just degenerated. And then they divided as a country, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and they ended up fighting with one another. And folks, if you're trying to work out why, it all goes all the way back to the beginning, doesn't it? Adam's enmity towards God very quickly followed in enmity towards his wife. He blamed her uh, for his sin. And very soon, the first child and the second child they have um, end up in a, a situation where one becomes jealous of the other and then viciously kills his brother Abel. And then God comes to Cain and asks Cain, uh, where's your brother? And callously, he responds with another question, an apathetic question in Genesis 4, verse 9. He says, am I my brother's keeper? Folks, uh, that early account in Genesis, it explains all the wars in Jerusalem. It explains uh, the hatred and the hostility between Jew and Gentile. It explains the racism uh, of one group against another. It even explains the Berlin Wall. It explains the bamboo curtain, which made sure it kept people in. Uh, explains Trump's wall, which kept people out. Um, we all start our lives living as enemies of God. And this results in separation and enmity with one another. We might not fight with everyone, but we'll find a fight somewhere. Um, Today, we will fight over politics, we will fight over religion, we will fight over nationalities, we'll fight over territory, we'll fight over ideologies, we'll fight over education, we'll fight over gender, we'll fight over accents, we'll fight over colour, we'll fight over family names, we'll fight over heritage. I was impressed with Tom yesterday in the marriage seminar, he even brought an illustration from the cricket. And it was really good. I know it was appreciated by the Indians because Australia beat the Indians this week. Uh, folks, we live and divide over sport. Um, remember, Paul says, remember that we belong and we contributed in our history to a divided and a hostile world. The second thing he picks up is that we are born separated from God and ungodly. Now there are things in our control uh, and there are things that we just cannot control. Uh, we can control the remote on our TV uh, if our wife doesn't get it first. We can control uh, a whole bunch of other things around our house 
uh, but we cannot control when we are born. Uh, we can choose our friends, we're told, and uh, we cannot choose our parents. Uh, and not only do we not choose our parents, but it, by default we don't choose our nationality. We don't choose our early education. We don't choose our gender. Uh, we don't choose our culture. We don't, don't choose even the religion we're trained up with in our early days. Um, we do not choose our social standing. We do not choose the suburb we grow up in. All of these things are massive factors in our life and we don't make a single decision. They're all made for us. We have no control over them. And yet they have consequences, don't they? Um, there are lots of things that happen in your life today that are a consequence of what your parents decided for you. They have an influence. You see, it mattered if you were born a Jew and it mattered if you were born a Gentile. If you were born a Gentile, well, you missed out. And if you were born a Jew, there were a bunch of privileges that you received just by virtue of being born to a family in Israel. Uh, and Paul mentions in the next verse, verse 12, uh, five privileges that were given to Jews uh, that just never really came to Gentiles. Verse 12, for instance, he firstly mentions that they were born without or separated from Christ. And all of you um, instantly look at it, and there are many of you, I suspect, who know straight away Christ is not a name or a surname. Christ is a title, isn't it? And in Hebrews, we would translate Christ as Messiah. In other words, what is Paul saying? He's saying the Gentiles had no knowledge of a coming Messiah. Um, they gave him no thought. When their family and friends would sit down, just like a Jewish family would sit down, the Jewish family would probably sit down and say, I can't wait for the coming Messiah who is going to save us from our misery. Um, but the Gentile would have no thought at all of a Messiah. Their lives were not influenced by him. This is not uh, how uh, they started off in their life. And folks, for most of us, this is not how we start off either. Uh, Jesus doesn't factor in our thinking. Uh, he's not real to us. Oh, some of us might go to Sunday school and we might hear some stories, but even then, he's not real to us. Uh, we ha want to have nothing to do with him. Uh, we grope in darkness, trying to find the meaning of life as if we're going to find it totally separate from Jesus. Verse 12, that at that time, in other words, when you were in your Gentile state, you were without Christ. Paul also teaches that the Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Once again, Israel were God's chosen people. They were given God's law. If you come on Sunday nights, for instance, uh, the young men are teaching us from the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments teach us something about God. What is God like? They define what godliness is. They teach us what is morally right and what is morally wrong. Um, the law gave Israel justice. Uh, the law also showed Israel mercy. 
These are concepts that were foreign to all the nations. There was this general punishment, general principle of punishment fitting the crime. So for instance, if you stole something, you were, given, you were to give back four times what you stole. You were not sent to a comfortable room and given foxtail and fed all your meals three days a week, three times a day. Um, nor did you have your hands chopped off, by the way. Punishment fit the crime. Um, punishment never exceeded the crime. Punishment was never less than the crime. But then even if you accidentally committed a crime, you were given refuge and you were given protection. Uh, sacrifices were provided for forgiveness for your crimes. The, mercy was in the law. The, the law provided stability. It provided prosperity. It provided for marriage. It provided for property ownership. It provided for uh, how we should train up our children and how we should punish our children if they refuse to obey their parents. It provided for workers' compensation. If you ever did study the law, you'll find the law is full of mercy. It produced a culture, didn't it? Israel, as they lived, and if they would choose to live according to the law, they would be a community that was just, that was caring. Uh, it would be a community that actually looked out for one another and for each other's good. Um, they would become a light on a hill. The nations would look at them and see them, and if the nations would see them and see how they were ordered, how they cared for one another, how they were just, how there was righteousness in the land, well then the nations would say, I want to join them. I am sick of where I live. And why is that? Because the Gentiles in their own nations had chaos. They lived in a dog-eat-dog society. They followed what was right in their own eyes. Little did they know, they thought, oh, this makes sense, let's do it. Little did they know, wait a few more years and it leads to death. Uh, the mob ruled. The poor were oppressed. The weak were killed. The vulnerable were exploited. It was manic, it was chaos. Folks, it sounds just like Sydney, doesn't it? And then the third thing in verse 12, Paul says that the Gentiles were strangers from the covenant of promise. Um, surely this is a reference to God's promise to Abraham. God uh, had promised him land and family and blessing, not just for him but for all nations. And we find these promises in Genesis in chapter 12 and 15. But I'll just read from Genesis 17 to give you uh, just a flavor of what God promised his people. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Uh, God, quite amazingly, uh, decided to come down to a people of sinners and be their intimate friend. He contracted to them. He contracted himself to be someone who would be in an intimate relationship with his people. The Gentiles, on the other hand, had hundreds and thousands of years where they were just passed over. Uh, they didn't have any access to God unless they came through Israel. And what a hurdle that would have been. You've got to give up your nationality, you've got to give up your religion, you've got to give up your culture, you've even got to give up your footy team. 
You've got to go and join Israel. And then not only did they not have the covenant of promise, uh, they were without hope, we're told. They lived for the now. They had no hope for the future. They had little sense of their sin. They sort of thought they were okay. Everything's going along well. Uh, but there was this guilty conscience inside that nagged at them and told them there's something wrong. And if you carry on in this way, I reckon it's going to catch up with you. You're going to be condemned. They had no idea how they would fare on Judgment Day. And this idea of a bright future in eternity was a bit like playing the lotto. It was just wishful thinking. Uh, maybe their worldview started with, oh, there was this little atom and it exploded and it split itself and then the universe got created. Uh, and then I think the way the world will end is just meaningless dust. On the 6th of February, the Guardian reported that Victoria had the highest increase in suicides since 2000. Male suicides increased by 8%. Female suicides increased by 12%. All ages across the board increased, and quite particularly older men increasingly took their own lives. You might be asking why are Victorians just losing hope? I put it to you, we're not far behind. The, the only difference between them and us is we don't count. And if we do count, we make sure you don't find out about it. And then he says, uh, the Gentiles were without God. Uh, from verse 12, without hope and without God in the world. And, and this sort of sounds like, oh, they had no gods at all and they were sort of groping around wondering if there is a God or not. No, no, they had their own gods. Um, this is not saying that they're without a god. This is saying that they are ungodly. Quite frankly, what it's saying literally in the Greek is that they are opposed to God. Uh, it reflects this disposition uh, that we see all over. I will deliberately be disobedient to God. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, on Friday. Sunday will be the biggest day for this weekend of world pride. As up to 50,000 participants will march across the Sydney Harbour Bridge to mark the closing of the event. Traffic in the city will be closed in Homebush and multiple concerts will be had at uh, Bondi Beach, the Harbour and the Sydney Olympic Park. Uh, Sydney, quite frankly, will be celebrating everything outside biblical marriage. Folks, this is ungodliness. As I prayed, this is not world pride. Uh, this is Sydney shame. Uh, what, what should be something we pray for is world humility, isn't it? Uh, folks, uh, the, the take-home message from these verses is that you and I would be no different to them. You and I would be no different to those Gentiles in the days... Uh, the letter was received by the Ephesians if God did not rescue us with great power and incredible mercy. Uh, the second point is remember. 
that the Gentiles and you and I were born without God and ungodly. The third thing we pick up is that we can only have peace and reconciliation through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you picked up the words in that verse 12. Interesting words. Separated. Aliens. Strangers. Ungodly. They all give you the sense of being left out. There's this crowd that's having a great time and you're not part of them. You're sort of on the other side. There's this in crowd that are the oppressors and there's this out crowd that are the oppressed, the victims. In 1848, Karl Marx, he wrote the Communist Manifesto. Interestingly, by the way, John Lennon got the words uh, from this leaflet. It's only years after he gave credit to that. And then years after that, he had to give credit to the fact that he ripped off Yoko Ono as well. What a classic human being. In 1883, though, Marx followed it up with a four-volume set called Das Kapital. And here he tried to explain the divisions in society, why there are divisions, why there's tension, why there's hostility between all of us. And he says it's got something to do with employers and workers. He says when workers make something, if I make a book, say, uh, as I make it, I'm actually putting something of me into the thing I make. Uh, and so as I do that, someone else comes along and says in a capitalist society, I'll pay you wages if you will give me the book, you will give me the product that you've made. And so in that sense, I can then give the book and get a wage and that person will take the book and sell it for three or four times what they would have paid me as a wage. He claims that the owners of the capital, the ones who are buying the product from the worker, they actually control the wages. And because they control the wages, with wages they take away products from the worker and then they take something actually from the worker. They're taking a part of the worker himself because he put himself into the product. And, and so because they've done that, they've alienated the worker from his work. They've separated him from his work. And by selling off a part of that worker, to someone else at a huge profit, uh, they create tensions in society. They create divisions in society. Now some of you are going to come and hammer me at morning tea and tell me that uh, his premises are wrong in the statements I've made. I'm, I'm not supporting him, I'm just telling you what he said. Um, and I'll agree with you. He, he, you see, he argued that capitalists were the oppressors and workers were the oppressed. Uh, and the only way to fix such a tension is to have a classless society where everybody is equal. Um, he said, the way to get it though is to organise a revolution. And the workers must rise up and they must somehow knock off or topple the capitalists. And then you'll have this truly equal society. Uh, now why do I talk so much about that? Well, folks, this is what, is what your kids are being taught. This is exactly what you are hearing in the news every day. Every time you hear any story about Black Lives Matter, any time you hear any cry for climate justice, any time you even hear about The Voice, uh, we get told it's a wonderful thing. Folks, it's racism. 
It's a class war. And many think this classless society will be just wonderful. It will actually stop all the tensions between us. It will bring us all together. Imagine. But what they never tell you is it's been tried over and over again and it's always failed. It's always resulted in a new bunch of oppressors and a new bunch of victims. The tensions have just moved, moved from one corner of the world to another corner. And what usually happens is the ones they're trying to free, the ones who are being, if you like, oppressed, are usually the ones who cop it worst. Now having outlined how alienated and how estranged the Gentiles were, how they were, if you like, racially if oppressed, uh, the Apostle Paul now comes to tell them that God has a solution for bringing all the divisions uh, together. And he can heal the divisions between Jews and Gentiles, uh, but he also has to deal firstly with the division between man and God. And verse 13, and we look at this more and more, uh, provides God's solution to alienation, to hopelessness, to despair, and to hostility. And it goes from verse 13 all the way to verse 22, and we're going to cover that later. But for this morning, I just want to make a couple of introductory comments about verse 13. Firstly, he says, but now. And that word but and but now is really saying, I want to tell you something totally opposite. I want to bring a contrast to you. You've had all the misery and, if you like, hopelessness of being a Gentile, but now I've got good news for you. I've got excellent news. You're going to make a U-turn, Gentiles. You're going to be no longer marginalized, but you're going to be brought in. Uh, notice the contrasting language. The Gentiles were once far away, but now they are brought near. Hen Hendrickson says it's Old Testament language. He says it's really talking about Jerusalem. Uh, he's saying Jer Jerusalem is where God chose to be with his people. And Jerusalem was in the middle of Israel. And so if you look at it geograph geographically, Israel was all around Jerusalem. And so Israel were near God. Gentiles lived outside Jerusalem and lived far away geographically. And so they were far away from God. And, and so what he says is that when... Jesus comes through the blood of Jesus he brings Gentiles near not geographically but spiritually it's like a play on words um, Stott says it's better to concentrate on the temple he says think about the picture of the temple the temple was built on a platform the platform was placed on the highest point in Jerusalem uh, the temple was here and then three adjacent courts housed three different groups of people. The closest one was the priests, then further away were the Israelite men, and then next to them were the women. But they were all on the same level as the temple. If you wanted to get to the Gentiles, you had to go five steps down and then you found this wall. And this wall had all over it signs saying no more trespasses, no trespasses. And if you do cross over, and you're not a Jew, well, they threaten death. But then from the wall, you had to go down another 14 steps till you came to another wall and then a platform, and that's where 
the Gentiles were. Folks, they could not have been any further away from access to God. And Paul says, but now. In other words, as opposed to in the past, at that time. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ obviously speaks of the cross, doesn't it? Uh, the Jewish sacrificial system has now been sidestepped. Uh, it's been abolished. There's a new way now for nations, all nations, to come to God. A and Paul recognizes that even these Gentile Ephesians are in Christ Jesus in that verse. He says, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off. Uh, you, you see, they're not just brought nearby, but they've been granted a spiritual and a mystical union with God's Son, Jesus Christ. It resolves the problem of being without Christ. It, it incorporates Jew and Gentile because they all have to come to God uh, the same way. It fulfills the promise to Abraham because all the nations are blessed through his seed. And now anyone, if they will put their faith in Jesus Christ, well, they can have a sure hope of the future and they will experience God's presence through his Holy Spirit in them. Uh, folks, this is not a dream of John Lennon. Uh, this happened in history. Jesus shed his blood that people might be able to come to God. This is not a political revolution that Karl Marx proposes. It's not an intellectual solution that many religions provide you. It's a deeply spiritual solution where through the blood of Jesus Christ, God works to unite mankind to God and his fellow man to one another in the church. It's an exceedingly great solution. Uh, God at the one time brokers peace between God and man and he brings Gentiles and Jews together. It's a powerful work. It's all of grace. A and you're sitting down and saying, well, that sounds too wonderful. I don't think we ever see that. Well, look around. Have a look at each other. See how different you are. See how you all come from different classes. See how you come from different nations. You have different sides of politics represented here. People like different sports. They follow different teams. Some are married, some are single. Some are males, some are females. And God yet is mightily transforming uh, each one who is a Christian to bear more and more the image of his son. And every time he does that, and every time he continues to work in you, you will see not just fellowship with men and God as their father, but between one another. And you'll see peace amongst the nations. We have the only vertical and the only horizontal solution to world peace. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we are brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. And even as we come to the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would speak to us of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing.
And then we'll come to the Lord's Supper and we're going to sing, Oh, how good it is.